everybody. Welcome, welcome to show 59 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia, joined by my co-host Fernando Ulrich from Brazil. Hello, Matthew. And today we have a very special guest to introduce, Mark Yusko. Mark is the founder and CEO of Morgan Creek Capital Management. He has extensive asset management experience, particularly in managing endowments and has served as CIO and Senior Investment Director for both UNC and Notre Dame's endowments, respectively. You can find him all over the financial news shows, promoting Bitcoin, a great spokesman for the space. Mark, thanks a lot for joining us on the show, and welcome. Thanks, Matthew, for having me. Thanks, Fernando, and look forward to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's maybe a bit cliche to to start asking about your background. It's been done before, so I just kind of want to get right into it. What are your overall goals at Morgan Creek Capital? Yeah, so you know, we came out of the university endowment world, as you mentioned, and uh, I brought uh, the team with me back in 2004 uh, to create Morgan Creek. The idea was to provide um, knowledge of and access to the endowment model of investing to other investors, to high net worth individuals, wealthy families, smaller endowments, foundations, pensions that didn't have big staff. And what was really interesting about the time back in 04 was uh, it was the time when alternative investments you know, were very scary. And uh, you know, all the bad guys were, were in hedge funds and, and private investments. And, and uh, you know, no self-respecting fiduciary would go down the path into, into hedge funds. You know, it sounds like crypto today. And, you know, we, we came out and, and um, started Morgan Creek to really provide, as I said, knowledge of and access to talent in what we thought were the best managers and the best asset classes, uh, the best niche approaches to making money around the world. And we did that uh, for the last 15 years and have had a great experience. But what's interesting is, is over time, uh, our mantra for the firm was alternative thinking about investments. You know, everybody talks about alternative investments, and I say, you know, there's no such thing. And, and actually, whoever thought up the word alternative was not a great marketing genius because people don't like alternative stuff, alternative music, alternative education. You know, they like traditional stuff. So getting people to get a big weighting in alternatives was really tough. And, and then the second point is, I would say alternative to what? Right? There's stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. That's all there are. And if you, know, you and I and, and Fernando own a bunch of stocks, if we put them in a mutual fund, a hedge fund, a private partnership, or a separate account, they're still stocks. They don't change form because of the legal ownership structure. So as we went down that path and trying to get people to think differently about investing and, and to go into niches and, and opportunities where other people weren't, you know, get out of the comfort and the safety of the herd, which is usually not a great, great place to make money, you know, we've come across lots of interesting opportunities, and, and about five years ago, six years ago now, uh, we stumbled across uh, this area of you know, cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain technology, and uh, you know, the rest is history, shall we say. And regarding then Bitcoin, if I can ask, what are your goals then at Morgan Creek Capital regarding Bitcoin and crypto or blockchain in general? Yeah, so you know, we, we view... Um, assets as, as part of overall portfolio. So our goals for, for clients is to generate you know, consistent real returns over very long periods of time. And by real returns, I mean returns net of inflation. 
And so if you think about the average endowment foundation or wealthy family or individual, you know, they're gonna spend somewhere between five and 6% real in, in perpetuity. So our job is to you know, create portfolios that, that generate that over time and minimize volatility and, and drawdown risk. So we look at, at Bitcoin or other crypto assets as tools in the toolkit to provide uh, a diversifying um, asset in a diversified portfolio. And one of the nice things that I find with, with Bitcoin in particular is it has a very low correlation to other traditional assets. And that is a very valuable asset in a portfolio allocator's toolkit. Uh, one of the challenges over time is, you know, you go back into the 60s and 70s when, you know, people really didn't even own equities. And, and then they started putting equities in portfolio and they found that they were actually pretty uncorrelated with bonds, but they were still somewhat correlated, particularly in times of stress. And then they added international equities and turned out in times of stress, international equities and traditional US equities became very correlated. Then they tried small caps and they tried hedge funds and they tried private. And all of those things do exhibit uh, lack of correlation at certain times and portfolio diversification benefits, Markowitz diversification benefits. But the challenge was that in those times of stress, they get highly correlated and, and cause uh, trouble for your portfolio. The nice thing about crypto assets is their returns aren't driven by the same things that traditional asset returns are driven by, which is GDP growth, earnings growth, and interest rates. They're driven by technology. And at the end of the day, Bitcoin is, is a network. It's a technology. It's an application of blockchain technology. And it uh, is more dependent on network growth and user adoption and regulation and technological innovation, all of which are, are uncorrelated to traditional assets. So we love it as a, a diversification tool. We love it as a long-term store of value and a, and a generator of, we think, excess returns over time. And how are you addressing the question of how to value these assets? Because it's, it's common sense now, or it's a common practice how to value bonds and stocks. But for crypto assets, for Bitcoin, there's no, let's say, consensus regarding how to value these assets. So how are you approaching this issue? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I actually think it's, I think there is some consensus and I think it's actually pretty easy to, to value a network. You know, there's been a lot of, of uh, things written about this in terms of, of Metcalf's law and, and the way a, a network or a technology grows. Um, things like user adoption rates and participation rates and, and uh, you can look at the growth in, in the actual physical infrastructure, the nodes. So I, I, I don't know why people talk about you can't value uh, networks. It's, it's quite easy to value networks. And you know, we don't seem to have any problem valuing networks like you know, Google or Amazon or, or other networks. But when it comes to, to Bitcoin, people freak out and say, oh, well, you know, there's no inherent value. Like, well, you mean different than the inherent value of a piece of green paper that we all refer to? Well, not all of us. In fact, all of us on this phone are in different places. And, we like different colored pieces of paper. True. Right? You know, we like green pieces of paper here in the US. You go to Israel, it's yellow pieces of paper. You go to China, it's red pieces of paper. All of them have no intrinsic value. I mean, currency has zero intrinsic value. It's all based on trust. So, but networks, on the other hand, do have intrinsic value and they do have value based on usership and, and growth. And I think all of those things can be put into an equation and, and looked at. Now, I think the biggest problem, Fernando, is that people conflate value and price. 
you know, value is what you get, price is what you pay, and, and price is just the, the actual price that two people agree to exchange some unit of an asset. And, you know, I, I joke all the time, like, you know, you look at a NASDAQ quote on, on, the, on the screen and everybody says, oh, you know, Amazon's worth, you know, $1,500. No, it's not, right? That's the price at which two people traded 100 shares. If you have a million shares of Amazon, you're not getting 1,500 bucks. If you have 10 million shares, you're definitely not getting 1,500 bucks. So the value is something very, very different than the price, but people are so focused on price they lose track of, of this whole idea that um, you know, two people can agree to exchange an asset for lots of different reasons. You know, someone could be under duress or under stress. They could be having a margin call. You know, they could have made a mistake in, in levering up an asset. Um, or it could be that you know, they're, they're just not paying attention to the underlying economic fundamentals that are changing. You know, whether you're talking about a stock, a bond, a currency, or a commodity, uh, or something like Bitcoin, which, you know, Bitcoin's interesting. It has um, characteristics similar to gold of both currency and commodity. Uh, you know, those are two of the only things around that have, uh, you can't classify them as one thing. You know, most times we know something's either a stock, a bond, a currency, or a commodity. But gold for years has had times when it's valued for its commodity value and other times when it's valued for its currency value. And I think Bitcoin is, is similar in that regard. You know, we have to come up with some metric for thinking about size of markets. And, and you know, I think market capitalization, while flawed, is, is good enough in the sense that, you know, we do know uh, how many units of, of Bitcoin or any other crypto asset there are. And we know what the, the current price is. Uh, and therefore, we can come up with a, a market capitalization. Now, market capitalization of any asset can be very, very different than the underlying value. I mean, take, take any stock at any time. It's highly unlikely that, that any security is at its precise fair value uh, for any you know, large fraction of the time. It's usually at one extreme or the other, either very undervalued or very overvalued, or on its way to being very undervalued or very overvalued. So uh, while market capitalization has its, has its drawbacks, I think it's, it's a fine representation of, of the overall activity of a particular market. Uh, as long as you don't you know, get caught in this, this conflation of ascribing value to the current trading price. All very good points. Um... I, I do want to ask you, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you specifically about the markets. You know, we don't talk about day trading on this show or anything, but, um, yeah. you know, obviously here we are. Uh, one year ago, we were in complete bull euphoria, uh, you know, just coming down from the all-time high, but of 20K, still around, you know, 14, 15K per Bitcoin. Here we are, uh, you know, January 15th, one year later, um, Bitcoin down 80%. Year on year, alts down ninety to ninety nine percent. How do you explain this specifically to your clients? You know this uh, <laughs> these cycles. Yeah, look, I think it's really, really critical. I only added two reallys. Maybe I need two more. Really, 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 really critical <laughs> to to focus on on some nomenclature here. So you know, one thing is the term cryptocurrency has, I think been conflated to apply to a whole cast of, 
of, as you said, altcoins that, that really have nothing to do with being cryptocurrencies. They have, they're crypto assets, but they're utility tokens. They're not cryptocurrencies. To, to me, a cryptocurrency uh, definitionally is something that either is a store of value or a medium of exchange, whereas a utility token gives you access to a network or some privilege or some right. And basically what, what utility tokens are, and that's you know, the vast majority you know, maybe there's a dozen actual cryptocurrencies, but the rest of these, these altcoins are um, basically uh, crowdsourced uh, venture capital. And the idea of, of pre-seed and seed stage venture capital actually not having a 90 plus percent loss ratio is absurd. And if people went into buying those assets with you know, not paying attention to facts like the fact that pre-seed and seed stage venture capital deals, 90 plus percent of them go to zero, literally to zero, not down a lot, but, but go away and disappear. Now, the ones that survive can become incredible rocket ships. And we all hear about, you know, the company like Apple started in the garage and, and was great. Well, what we don't hear about is the other nine companies that started in the garage or the other 99 companies that started in the garage that went, that went to zero. And you know, history's written by the winner, so that, that's the way that works. And um, so I, I try to keep the, the conversation focused when we talk to clients about there's cryptocurrencies, there are utility tokens, and there are security tokens. And the security token market really is nascent in its development. I think it's the biggest opportunity we'll probably see in our lifetime in terms of everything of value in the world. We'll probably talk about this later. I think will be tokenized and will be digitized and, and we will replace traditional assets with digital assets. Uh, cryptocurrencies, I think, are the first application of this incredible technology, blockchain technology. And it addresses two areas. One is store of value, one is medium exchange. And there are lots of different reasons why they may or may not be successful. And there are lots of reasons why first mover advantage works and why open source networks have, have you know, create moats that, that uh, the traditional tech world didn't have. Everybody says, oh, you know, Bitcoin's gonna be MySpace. There's zero probability it's MySpace. And we can talk about why that is. Um, mm. It may have other reasons why it fails, but it's not gonna fail because it was MySpace and Facebook has better tech. That's just not gonna happen. So um, the difference here is that cryptocurrencies, there's only a dozen of them. They are down because they tend to, um, because they are networks and we're early in the adoption curve on the S curve, you know, we're probably in the early adoption phase. You know, we're past the innovator phase, the two and a half percent, you know, people that create the, the new tech. And now we're in the kind of 12 and a half percent early adoption at the left-hand side of the S curve, right before we hit the knee of the curve and start to accelerate. And again, what people are, I think are, are lacking to focus on is we haven't even started the blockchain era. You know, the blockchain technology is a technological evolution that follows the 14 year technology cycle that started back in the 50s uh, when computing was basically created with mainframes. So 1954, we had the mainframe, 68, 14 years later, we had the microchip. 82, 14 years later, we had the personal computer. That's where Steve Ballmer's mom said, hey, don't go work in that company because why would anyone want a computer in their house? He has 18 billion reasons to say, mom, I think I was right. right. Then in 1996, we had the internet. 
And everybody said, you know, why is the internet important? And Paul Krugman said, it'll never be more important than a uh, uh, fax machine. And kind of silly. Then 14 years later, 2010, we had the mobile net. And, you know, when Google bought uh, Android in 2005, people laughed at them. 2010, it didn't look so funny anymore. Now they've got 80 plus percent market share globally of, of operating systems on handhelds. And you know, we shouldn't call them phones, really. They're really mini super supercomputers that we carry around in our pocket. It's incredible. And then in 2024, which is still five years from now, is the blockchain era or the trust net, as I call it. So we go from the internet to the mobile net to the trust net. And when that happens and when we emerge into this, this new operating system and all businesses, I think, will run on blockchains in the future, just like things ran on DOS and Windows. Now they run on iOS and Android. And in the future, they'll run on blockchains. And so as we acknowledge that, that these tools uh, are um, going to be created out of this ecosystem surrounding this technological evolution, I think our whole perspective changes on how early we are. It's like you know, 1995 in the internet, you know, when we invested in this little company called Google when I was at Notre Dame, I would say there should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. You know, we put in half a million dollars and took out 200 million. So pretty good investment. Now we didn't do that. Sequoia did it, but we invest. We were smart enough to invest in Sequoia. So that's a long rambling answer, which I'm not even sure answered your question. But we can get back to it. No, it surely does. Now you mentioned that the cryptocurrencies they may be a medium of exchange or a store of value. This is similar to saying it's either digital gold or maybe digital gold or digital cash. Do you tend to follow the debates between the Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash communities? Do you have a personal view on, on how, which side is, have, uh, the, has the better arguments? I'm a big believer that you know, there's only one Bitcoin and you know, Bitcoin is Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin will, uh, Bitcoin made a choice when you think about you know, today it's viewed as digital gold. People say it doesn't scale and you can't use it for transactions. You know, that was Satoshi Son's, you know, original vision. And it's not working as a peer-to-peer cash exchange. I'm like, well, yeah, because you have to make a choice between security and speed. And Bitcoin chose security. It's the most secure computing network on the planet, bar none, right? Hundreds of millions of transactions over 10 years, not one fraudulent transaction. I've had to change my Visa card number or MasterCard number twice in the past year because of fraud. Okay, no one's even close in terms of security. It's the most powerful computing network on the planet, 1,500 times more powerful than the world's most powerful supercomputer in Switzerland. So it's, it made a choice to be secure and safe. And it's like the old adage, you know, when you're doing anything, you know, getting clothes, building a house, good, fast, and cheap, pick two. You can have it good and fast, but it won't be cheap. You can have it good and cheap, but it won't be... Uh, fast, and you can have it good, and or you can have it fast and good, but it won't be cheap. So, um, same thing here is we've we've chosen to have the Bitcoin blockchain be the most secure network on the planet. Well, how does that change? Well, because oh, well, we can just go back to the original vision, and we can create Bitcoin Cash. Well, no, you're not going to have enough um, usage and enough embracing of of that side chain in the sense of, you know, Paul Romer just won the Nobel Prize. You know, I actually read his paper in 1987, the geek that I was back in business school. And I said, man, this guy's going to win the Nobel Prize someday. And people said, why? I said, because the law of increasing returns is amazing. You know, you think about it, what he was saying 
was it's not the best technology that wins, it's the technology that gets the greatest critical mass the fastest. And so Betamax and VHS, and there are lots of examples over the years. And actually, in fact, most people on this podcast aren't old enough to remember what Betamax was or, or VCR, but it, it, look it up on Wikipedia. We, we got you. Yeah, well, I know you guys know, but I mean, <laughs> look it up on Wikipedia, you know, for all the millennials out there. But the reality is that um, I think Bitcoin Cash misses the point, which is the reason Bitcoin's so amazing is it's got this incredible following and uses base and it's growing every day. You know, regardless of what the price does, the number of users and the number of unit holders and the number of wallet holders keeps going up. And so what I think will, will happen is we'll do a lot of the improvements in speed on side chains or lightning network or, or other things that, that work around Bitcoin as the core layer, and then we'll build second and third layer systems on top of it. So that's, again, long answer. I actually don't do short very well, but that's a long answer to say I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin believer, call me a maximalist, whatever, but uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of all these other Bitcoin wannabes. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh, fascinating. I think the way you've laid out uh, your answers to the past couple questions, and we're we're definitely uh, long, long form as well. Uh, that's that's definitely the whole point of the show. So really, really interesting. Uh, I guess I do want to touch back on your MySpace reference, though, because some people, st- I, I think you have already answered this, uh, but let's maybe try to hit the bullseye. Like yep. some people still say. Uh, they 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 just, they just don't understand. They still think that Bitcoin has a, a big possibility to be MySpace here. They think that its network effect is not large enough. I think you've already given plenty of data points to to smash that. But maybe maybe you could take it a bit deeper. Why will Bitcoin not be MySpace? Yeah, I mean the the biggest reason, and let me let me explain what I mean by that is is specifically MySpace was this emerging technological platform, this social platform. And it was the first mover. Actually, well, it was the second mover, but it was the first mover to gain traction. Mm. And everybody thought it was going to be great, but then this, this other thing came along called the Facebook, and it became more viral and, and ultimately replaced MySpace as, as the winner in you know social media platform. And people said, well, that could just happen to Bitcoin. You know, someone can create, you know whatever you want to call it, you know, Bitcoin 2.0 or whatever. It would have to come up with a different name, but whatever it is. Um, and the difference is when Facebook came out, MySpace couldn't just copy the code inside Facebook because it was proprietary software, because it's a closed system. In the open source world, post you know, the development of Red Hat and Linux and, and all these open source systems, now we have the situation where literally any technological improvement that Bitcoin looks at and says, oh, that's better, that, make, that would make me a faster processor, or that would make me more secure, or that would you know, allow more people to use it for this application or this use case, you can literally copy-paste the code and add it to your system. So from the standpoint of Facebook you know, putting, putting MySpace out of business, not going to happen. Now, is it possible that some different technology, not a decentralized um, uh, distributed ledger technology comes along and replaces people's desire to use distributed ledger technology or Bitcoin type technology, that's certainly possible, right? I'm not saying that, that 
Bitcoin is one absolutely and has zero chance of going to zero. I happen to think it's a very low probability event. And I would say that investing is all about possibilities and probabilities. You should, you should focus on probabilities and avoid possibilities. And so it's possible that somebody comes up with something better and displaces this, this huge community of global users. Um, but every once in a while, right? It doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, and I, I don't know what the periodicity is, and it probably isn't, isn't um, consistent. It's probably more random. But every once in a while, technologies or movements occur that have so much critical mass and, and make so much innovation above the previous system that they just become the standard. You know, it's, 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 it's like, you know, there, there are people that, that didn't want you to ride in horseless carriages, literally, right? The, the street sweepers were very unhappy because their jobs were going to be displaced. So they spread false rumors, you know, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, with uh, pamphlets saying that if you got in a horseless carriage, you, you might die, right? Or the first time the airplane came out, the train manufacturers spread out literature saying, well, if you go above a certain miles per hour, your body will cave in on itself. So you clearly shouldn't get in an airplane. So all those things were fear, uncertainty, and doubt. They weren't true. And the same thing happens with every emerging technology. And, but some technologies, some innovations are so great and they become so entrenched and ingrained that they are unable to be displaced. And when I say unable, I don't mean forever and ever. Um, but you know, how long has paper currency been around? You know, since 1300? That's really not that long in the history of, of the world. It's a long time in the history of mankind. That's a long time for anybody listening to this podcast. But um, what people don't seem to remember for some reason is people say, oh, the dollar could never be replaced as the world reserve currency. Really? Well, how long has the dollar been the world reserve currency? Since 1944. It's not even 100 years, guys. So, and before that, it was the pound sterling and the sun never set on the British Empire and everybody thought, you know, the UK was the most powerful nation in the world. And, and by the way, you never want to be called an empire because empires fall. The Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, the you know, British Empire, the American Empire, empires fall. And it's actually what's happening to America today. Another story for another day. But at the end of the day, you know, you can go back to why currencies become so uh, well used and popular and, and become the world reserve currency. And in the old days, it was because of military might. So the Portuguese, um, you know what the Portuguese was called? Uh, the Portuguese currency was the world reserve currency back when they had the tallest trees. Then Spain took them over, got the trees, had the best Navy. So then it was the, you know, the Spanish currency. And then the UK got the steam engine and their power, they had the most powerful Navy. So they took over and then it was the, the uh, British pound. And then the America had the, highest, the most powerful navy and it became the dollar. Well, now it might not be about military might. It might be about computing power and hacking power. And the, the next war might not be fought with ground troops. It might be fought in cyberspace. So there's this whole movement toward looking for a better solution than central banker backed currencies, which any currency that is subject to 
devaluation by the creation of new fiat. So any fiat system is doomed to failure. And we have 875 paper currencies in the history of the world. Three quarters of them don't exist today. They've all gone away and they all will go away because when a government gets in a position where they've overspent, what do they do? Well, they can't default and they can't pay it back. So they will inflate their way out. And the only way to do that is to devalue the currency. And see, you've seen it in Zimbabwe, you've seen it in Venezuela, you've seen it in Argentina, you will see it in America, you'll see it in Europe. And ultimately, people around the world are saying, wait a minute, this Satoshi guy or gal or group or whoever it was, has, has really created something where I can have confidence that there's a fixed supply that there'll only be 21 million or probably 17 million or 16 million or whatever the final number ends up being after losses. And those, that currency, that, that currency will preserve my wealth because it is sound money. And that's why it's so exciting. And that's why the, the upside here is, is so large because we're at the very, very tiny tip of the iceberg of how many people could use, will use, uh, this technology and this and this medium of exchange over time. Mark, you're definitely uh, hitting all the right notes <laughs> for what we what we like <laughs> to talk about. Uh, a couple of things there. Fernando's uh, YouTube channel uh, in English is actually called. Uh, it's in Portuguese, but the English translation is uh, "Money for the Digital Age," oh, which I think uh, very much sums up exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Uh, another small point for our listeners: I just looked it up. Would not have known this, but we are into history as well. It, it was the Portuguese real. It was called the real. Ah, thank you. Old, I appreciate that. Yep, I appreciate yep. that. Um, I'd like to continue on this train of thought, but I, I want to go back uh, before we do so to the markets. I had a couple more market-based questions that I wanted to ask you. So, first one, uh, very specific. Uh, CME futures options, SIBO futures options. How important are those in the crypto markets? And I want to give a couple stats uh, as well. So uh, it's about 4,300 contracts in each exchange. The CME is five bitcoins, SIBO is one, all cash settled. If you do the math, that's about $90 million in open interest, as far as I can tell. Yep. Whereas if we do a very rough stat on coin market cap, and this is very rough, and people dispute this and criticize it, but coin market cap's 24-hour volume is $5.6 billion. So $90 million on the U.S. option and future exchanges versus $5.6 billion. That seems to be a big discrepancy. Uh, how, how do you look at the futures and options markets in crypto and, and, and Bitcoin? What, what do they do to the market? Yeah, look, I think it's a really great point that you bring up uh, in terms of, of quantifying the the volumes, because you know we all we all have have feared the boogeyman, shall we say? Um, or I guess I can't say boogeyman anymore. The big the boogie person. Um, but the uh, the reality is, if you go back to December eighteenth uh, of two thousand seventeen, and when the the first you know cash settle futures contract was going to trade. And, and I actually tweeted about this back on, on that day saying, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about a couple things. One, we've had this, this massive run in, in the price of, of Bitcoin well above what we think of as, as fair value or the value of the network, which we at the time calculated around $10,000 a unit. And here we were close to 20000 I was also concerned about, you know, there was a GAN turn date, WD GAN uh, wrote this stuff back in the you know, early 1900s about how how lunar cycles you know, impacted trading and, 
and you'd get to these extremes around these these GAN dates, and then the markets would turn on these dates. And and if you look back in history, they they do turn. Right this year in the stock market, you know 922 was a GAN date, and the market turned right on 922. There's another big date, big turn date coming up on January 22nd. We'll see what happens. Um, but these these cycles tend to to revolve around greed and fear, and and certainly the the fear around uh, the futures contract and people being able to get you know short for the first time uh, outright without really taking a position in the underlying um, you know Bitcoin itself caused some stress and and I I absolutely believe that despite the small volume in terms of of the that that volume is really you know a lot of of bots trading with themselves each day and. Uh, you know, you look at the big volume numbers on any exchange today, it's hard to know what's real and what's just kind of churning of, of bots trading amongst themselves and seeding the clouds and doing all kinds of crazy things um, to make money for themselves, maybe not for other investors. But I, I, I think it's clear now with the benefit of hindsight that, you know, we warned that it was likely to be a pretty substantial correction in first quarter 18. And, and we thought it would go well below 10,000. You know, I'll admit com- being completely flabbergasted that you know, I didn't think there was any way it would go lower than 6,000, which is kind of a number I, I came up with based on how far below fair value I thought we could get. And it turns out I was wrong. And here we are at 3,700 and all the way down to 3,200. Um, very much wrong that 6,000 was the bottom. But I think now with the benefit of hindsight, what we can see is that um, this issue of um, whether people want to call it manipulation, people want to call it speculation. Um, if you if you create uh, an ability for people to, you know, essentially rehypothecate or create uh, a, a security or an asset out of thin air, um, it, it causes a problem. And and I where I made the mistake is I thought that the cash settled futures would be different than traditional futures market, and if you look back at, at futures markets over time, you know, they've really destroyed a lot of, of commodity markets in terms of price discovery. Uh, and it's because in the old days, if, if I wanted to have a barrel of oil and uh, I wanted to sell it to one of you guys, I actually had to have access to a barrel of oil. I couldn't just write a contract and sell you a barrel of oil if I didn't actually have the oil. Well, now anyone can write a contract for anything and sell whatever they want, even if they don't have it, as long as that contract gets settled in advance of the delivery date. And so you look at, at these crazy spikes in oil prices and then the crazy collapses on the other side, it's all because you get a, a mismatch of paper commodities and, and actual commodities. And I think the same thing has happened in, in Bitcoin. And, and uh, you know, I think it's, it's unfortunate, but um, you know, one of the things that Bitcoin was trying to solve was you know, to move away from, um, you know, fractional reserve banking and the creation of, of money out of thin air. And unfortunately, we kind of gave the speculative community a, a tool to do just that. Uh, and I don't think it's as big a deal maybe as, as some others do. And I, and I don't think it's, it's clear not as bad as in the gold market or the oil market. Um, but I do think it's a problem. And I, I do think that the more derivative innovation that is, you know, allowed and, and comes on, the, ch- the more of a challenge 
uh, Bitcoin will have to to adhere to its kind of long-term stated objective of being sound money. Hey, everybody, just want to take a moment to tell you about our product sponsor for this episode, Crypto Tradesmith. If volatility and FOMO is just too much for you, Crypto Tradesmith will help. By signing up for Crypto Tradesmith, you'll get risk management tools and over 50,000 trading pairs to help you manage your portfolio. Price your portfolio in dollars, price it in Bitcoin, price it in Litecoin, as you wish. You'll get custom email and text alerts when a volatile point or trailing stop is triggered. You'll also get access to Dr. Richard Smith's proprietary green, yellow, red light indicators and a ton of other great tools such as Portfolio Risk Analyzer and Rebalancer. This is risk management software. This is not day trading software. It's amazing. We endorse it. And by the way, if you use it, you can manage big picture Bitcoin portfolio strategies like stop loss and buy orders completely off book. Your exchange will never know what your strategy is. So it tandems very well with managing your own keys which you should do. So sign up right away on our special offer page, cryptovoices.com slash tradesmithoffer, cryptovoices.com slash tradesmithoffer. You'd be helping the show out, cannot endorse the product highly enough. And also check out episode 55, where we interview the founder of Trade Stops and Crypto Trade Smith, Dr. Richard Smith. Now, Mark, you brought up the issue of manipulation or speculation, and I, I think this is a, a very important aspect in this in, in this market, because it seems to me there is some kind of disconnect between, on the one hand, the underlying technology, Bitcoin, which is secure, resilient, it's it's simply fantastic, and on the other hand, the venues or the exchanges where the asset is traded where the price is discovered. Some have their own rules, some are more transparent than others, but they do affect the price of the asset. How do you think, how important do you think are the exchanges right now? And what is the importance of the so-called regulated exchanges as, for example, Gemini is, is touting this, uh, this aspect right now in, the, in their ads? Yeah, let's think about it, right? Um... Exchanges clearly are are critically important today. You know, people trust them, uh, and people are willing to leave their their Bitcoin at the exchanges. And as we read this morning, uh, if you choose the wrong exchange, that can turn out to be a very costly mistake. Um, but let's let's think about a couple of those words. You know, I, I call this this next evolution of technology the trust net for a reason. And what what uh, you know, blockchain technology allows is a creation of a single point of truth and a peer-to-peer -peer exchange without a trusted third party, without a rent-seeking middleman. Yet here, all we've done is, is swap banks for exchanges, which in, in many ways are, um, you know, trusted third parties. And they are rent-seeking, you know, they take a fee for, for doing transactions. And, and so we've just you know, replaced one evil with another potentially. And I'm not saying that, that exchanges are evil per se. What I'm saying is that they, they are subject to the same challenges in terms of they can create rehypothecation risks, they can create, um, you know, loss risks from, from theft or from hacking in the same way a bank can be stolen from. You know, the reason banks have these big columns and marble pillars and, and big safes is to make you feel safe and, and make you trust the institution. Well, people figured out you could blow up the safe and steal the money. 
So then they came up with other ways to secure their money. And, you know, people always say, well, you know, the, the you know, Bitcoin is, is, is so much less secure. You know, people get it stolen all the time. I'm like, well, let's think about this. How much money has been stolen from the Federal Reserve? Well, that would be zero. How much money has been stolen from Bank of America's New York office or New York branch? Pretty close to zero. I think it might actually be zero. How about from a branch bank in you know, North Carolina uh, that's under the Bank of America label? Yeah, probably more. How about from somebody's purse or wallet? Probably a lot. So same thing's true here is if, if I leave my money on chain, you know, no, there's never been one fraudulent transaction, never been one hack on the Bitcoin blockchain, probably never will be. So it's very secure like the Federal Reserve. But as you move away from the chain and you go to an exchange, well, how many times been, you know, has Coinbase been hacked? Well, zero at this point, or Binance, zero at this point. But what about some of these lesser exchanges, you know, like a branch bank, you know, more likely to be hacked? What about leaving it in your wallet? You know, why anyone would leave lots of digital currency or digital assets on their phone or in a wallet online, I don't get. You know, why Would anyone leave a million dollars in their purse? I, I don't think so. You know, I've been SIM swapped twice. And thankfully, you know, praise whoever I am supposed to praise, uh, I didn't lose anything because I was lucky. Um, but, you know, first time I was totally unprepared for it. Second time I thought I was prepared for it, but I forgot that I had a backup email address that still had two-party authentication and my phone number, which, you know, the hackers are pretty good. But, you know, fortunately I didn't lose anything because I didn't leave anything in my wallet or in an exchange linked to my phone. But lots of people have had that, that problem. So, again, long winding answer to your, to your question about, you know, are exchanges good, bad, indifferent? Well, look, I think they're great because they allow usage and adoption and, and people to get comfortable with this this new digital asset that was pretty scary at the beginning because people are always scared by new technology and, and new technology is always, it's always adopted by the bad guys first right who was the first person to use a pager drug dealer who's the first person to use a cell phone drug dealer who's the first person to use bitcoin drug dealer so everybody gets all upset about that like why people use technology and then it becomes mass adopted because people get comfortable with it. Remember the first, you, I, you guys probably won't remember this, but I remember the first time I put my credit card number on my computer, I almost freaked out. My wife was screaming at me in the background, don't do it, don't do it. Mm. And the reason I was willing to do it is the first time we had our credit card stolen was when we handed it to a person at our dry cleaner and she copied down the number and 20 minutes later she spent $900 of Victoria's Secret. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, literally just crazy. But, um, I feel more secure putting my credit card in a computer than I do handing it to someone at the dry cleaner. But I do think that exchanges probably have a limited shelf life because at the end of the day, what peer-to-peer exchange of value is all about is I have control of my digital asset, you have control of your digital asset, and we agree to exchange something of value for a digital asset. And I think that will happen. I think it's coming. I think it's going to take some time. Um, but technology evolves and, and changes, and um, you know, we'll see what happens. But I, I, I think the future is bright for the, the crypto asset universe, but we're going to have growing pains, and we're going to have challenges. And, um, but I think two things. One, I think the genie's out of the bottle, to use a tired analogy. And I also think that there are um, too many digital natives 
that, you know, have never been in a bank branch, wouldn't even know where to go to a bank branch, you know, wouldn't know how to, and they don't carry cash, literally don't carry cash, uh, and are very comfortable operating in a pure digital world. And yeah, I saw this guy. I, d- I didn't think I could get more excited about digital currencies and digital future uh, than I already was. And you know, I, I didn't start this way. I, mean, I started skeptical, just like everybody else that I know who's smart that you know, started skeptical. And then the more I learned, the more excited I got. And the more I learned, the more excited I got. And so this is a kind of a six-year journey for me. Um, but I didn't think I could get more excited than I was until I heard this guy, Rod Collins, who wrote a book called Wiki Management, talk about the, the future of a digital world. And he just blew me away with this, this idea of, of ubiquity in terms of, of digital connections and Internet of Things and, and Bitcoin as a, as a fuel and, and as a liquid, um, um, not as liquid, but as a lubricant for, for those, that, that transactional world in which we'll live and, and just blew me away. So I, I, I'm more excited today than I was before I heard his talk a couple months ago. So All fantastic points right there. Uh, particularly interesting, your analogy uh, regarding hacks and theft, uh, you know, the further away you get from on-chain, yep. the further away you get from the central bank, closer to a purse or a wallet or a phone. Never actually heard it put quite like that. That's, that's a very good analogy. One more thing, though, regarding this sort of uh, regulated world and exchanges, and uh, as Fernando alluded to, you know, the Gemini ad of uh, revolutions need rules, which was yeah. quite, you know, the crypto Twitter had a field day with that one. What is your thought on government virtual currencies, as they like to call them, quote, virtual currencies, and how will they compete? I'm actually of the opinion that they won't even do it. I mean, they've shown, you know, the government has shown that it has trouble, you know, running a healthcare website. I, I, I think the idea of a platform of a government-based currency would be very difficult to roll out. But what I do think they can do and what they have shown, you know, from time immemorial to do is, is very quickly to strong arm, to monopolize, to control and uh, shed favorable terms on those parties that they like. And I don't, want to pick on Gemini, but Gemini clearly is a good example in this case in that they are, and have been clearly, from the beginning, positioning themselves very different than you know, the crypto Twitter ethos from the Bitcoin ethos. Yeah. They are, you know, they are positioning themselves to be that sort of old, <laughs> old isn't the right word, but to, you, know, the, you know what I'm saying, to be the... No, no, absolutely, the, the link, right? The yeah, bridge. to be the link. So th- this is a very interesting question long term, what will government virtual currencies actually look like in the future? And do you think something like you know a Gemini dollar would be the route that they would go from monopolizing and saying, okay, this is really the only thing that you can trade and you can use? Yeah, so there, there's so many really important things to talk about here, and I'll try to do it relatively quickly. Um, you know, a couple things that that are critical. So one is is this idea of of regulation and. And, uh, and governance and, and people say, oh, you know, there, there shouldn't be any regulation. No, no, it's not true. Decentralized versus centralized systems, most people only think of in two dimensions. They think of architecturally centralized or decentralized and politically centralized or decentralized. And the best way to think about that is, is a, you know, a politically and architecturally centralized organization is a, is a company, right? There's one CEO, one home office, and you know, the challenge of, of politically and architecturally centralized systems is they're easy to kill. 
right? You want to you want to stop a, a a single company, right? You kidnap the CEO or blow up the home office. I'm not saying do acts of terrorism, but I mean that's an example of of how vulnerable a centralized system is, right? When Napster tried to allow f- um, music sharing, the problem was there was you know one server and one CEO, and you arrest Sean and you blow up his server and it's done. Napster's over. So government can kill a centralized system uh, politically and architecturally. What, what Bitcoin or blockchain technology is, is it's politically decentralized and architecturally decentralized, but there's a third layer of centralization that people miss, which is logically centralized or decentralized. And the reason regulation comes in and, and the reason the, the Winkle, Winklevoss or Winklevi are, are so smart, and I'm, look, I'm, I'm a Winkle fan, Right? How many times do you find people who've been at the beginning of two massive revolutions? Yeah, I mean, I, I love these guys, and I think they're great. So um, all the people that hate them, you know, haters are going to hate, but I think they're great, and I think what they're doing is really smart because there's this third layer of decentralization on, on the political level, which, I mean, I'm sorry, on the logical level, which is we don't want there to be high, or, uh, anarchy in the world of protocols and, and, um, and coins and currencies. And so if you think about blockchain technology or Bitcoin itself, the same way we think of common law. Common law is architecturally and politically decentralized. Right? There can be different common laws for different jurisdictions and different people, different organizations, and it's, it's governed by a democracy in most cases, although there are bad examples where it's not. But it's decentralized on both, on both um, areas. But it's logically centralized, meaning there's only one common law. And if there were lots of common law, the world would break down. And the same thing's true with, with crypto or Bitcoin, is you need a set of standards or a common law around this idea of logical centralization. Whereas like the English language, right? here I am having a conversation with you, mostly in English, because um, my Portuguese is really bad, and uh, you know, yet my wife is having a conversation with my son in a very different language, so it is logically decentralized. It's kind of English, but he's bilingual, because his Argentinian babysitter taught him to speak Spanish, and so I'll say to him, I'll say, you know, Will, cuantos? He'll say, Dad, there's three. I'm like, no, no, in Espanol, I was like, Dad, you don't speak Spanish. Well, okay, that's a fact, but you could you could humor me and tell me, you know, Trace. But the thing is, as we think about regulation, all of these governments want to maintain control of their central bank monopolies and their fiat monopolies. But it isn't gonna happen because the problem is this idea that the governments are all gonna issue crypto. Well, you can't. A government can't have a cryptocurrency. A cryptocurrency is decentralized by its very nature. You said it. You could have a virtual currency. You could have a digital currency that's government. In fact, today the dollar essentially is digital. 92% of it is digital. There's only 8% in coins and notes. So it could go 100% easily. India went to 100%, right? They basically said, we're going to outlaw currency. Almost. They, They still have some notes. But I actually think China is going to get there. I think China is going to have the first renminbi coin. I think it will be a national digital currency. It won't be a cryptocurrency. It will be a fiat currency. It will be subject to the PBOC. I think Russia is right behind them in terms of development. And I think those two will be the first two. I think the dollar will eventually get there. But Fedcoin is not a crypto. It is a digital fiat currency. It still suffers from all the problems of fiat currency. 
cryptocurrency is still better because it's sound money. Now, as we migrate down the path and the genius of the Winklevi here is to say we're going to be regulated, one thing we know is that the SEC and other regulatory bodies want to protect the little guy from fraud and from scams. And, and so they're going to come down and crack down really hard on unregulated entities and people who try to skirt the, the regulations and the rules. And, and they made a really good point. And I've, I've, I'll tell you, I have great admiration for the SEC and the way they've been measured and reasonable and their approach to this whole regulatory issue around these new assets. And I've been very impressed with their leadership. And I've heard Jay speak a couple times and I've just really been impressed. But what's really interesting about it is you know, they could come down hard and just outlaw everything, but that wouldn't be smart. But what they've said is we've created hundreds of trillions of global wealth using a set of rules that, that actually work pretty well since the 1930s and 40s. And so by adopting those rules and bringing some things that should be regulated and have rules and letting other things be deemed not a security, yeah, we think Bitcoin is not a security. That was a good decision, right? It's more like a commodity or a currency. It's not a security. Yet there are other things, you know, crowdsourced venture capital, that's a security. And if you violate securities laws, you should get in trouble. So all of these things make sense. And look, if, if I, you know, one of the reasons we've made investments in infrastructure around companies that are trying to be regulated exchanges or regulated entities is we do think cooperation is better than fighting. And therefore... Uh, but the thing that, again, this is a long conversation for another day probably, the thing that's challenging for any of this is the SEC is just one organization. There's one in India, there's one in China, there's one in Russia. You know, all of these regulatory bodies have to recognize that one of the great things about crypto and about blockchain is it's borderless. For the first time, we can have true borderless transactions. We can have borderless movement of assets. And as things become tokenized and digitized, as we take every asset of value from public companies, private companies, to real estate, to um, you know, commodities, to royalty rights and drugs and anything of value that can be exchanged, as that all becomes digitized and starts to move around the world in a borderless fashion, it's gonna create all kinds of challenges for taxation and whose laws apply. And it is going to be a challenge. And I think the more we collaborate, the better off we're going to be rather than think that somebody's going to come up with, you know, FedCoin and they're going to decree that that's going to be used by everybody. It will be if it has advantages, but if it's still fiat, people are going to leave for sound money. Now, Mark, let me play devil's advocate here. Now, as an asset manager and investor, you have to revisit your assumptions every now and then. You have to reassess your investments. So what do you think would make you revisit your view of Bitcoin and its potential in the future? Which factors do you keep on the radar to make you revisit your assumptions regarding the future and prospects of crypto in general? Yeah, I mean, incredibly fantastic question. So... Uh, so many things, and and if you think about first and foremost, what 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 I look at is, you know, fundamental user adoption and um, technological um, evolution. So every time that that I see 
you know, the number of wallets move up or the number of transactions move up or the daily trading volume move up or, you know, new innovations in, in security or, you know, like, like what's going on with the Lightning Network, which I just, you know, again, we could talk all day about that. Um, I get really excited. So uh, if, if, if it turned out that, that Lightning developers started not, you know, being as excited as they seem to be, as if the talent migration started to slow. I mean, uh, and, and I still a lot of, it's just funny. So I have this partner, Anthony Pompliano, you guys probably know him. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I, the first time I met him, I said, it, it felt like I was talking to myself. I would say, you know, a younger, better looking version of myself. But we just have so much in common, even though we're, you know, 25 years apart. And he had a lot of things that I've, I've borrowed or, you know, as Picasso said, good artists borrow, great artists steal. So I just steal his lines. But, but one of the things that, that we talk about is this, this idea that, um, you know, as, as, as the, the technology evolves and migrates and, and becomes more ubiquitous, you know, we have to, to make sure that we, we pay attention to, um, you know, who's actually using it and, and is there um, talent that is migrating into the space that, that's real. And uh, there was a line that, that somebody told him early in his career and, and someone's told me something similar is that in this business of investing, you basically wanna follow the talent and follow the money. And the only time I've seen talent migration like this was in the early 90s around the internet and money uh, will always flow to its highest and best use. And so we're seeing capital flow and an intellectual property flow and intellectual uh, horsepower flow into the space. So if any of those things started to change, I would have to re-examine my, my thesis. You know, in terms of, of Bitcoin itself, uh, you know, people talk about you know, the MySpace risk and the Facebook risk, and as I said, I, I don't believe that because of open source systems. But look, if, if there were a new technology that, that came along that, that I thought um, garnered enough attention and, and critical mass, that, that could eventually displace, and, what, and that would show up in the numbers, right? We'd see less usage and, and less migration in, into Bitcoin itself. Um, and there are, there are other people that think they've, they've created that already, and I've looked at them and I, I, I don't see it. Um, you know, people rail on proof of work and say, you know, it's not energy efficient. And, and like, really? You know, how much energy is used in the global banking system? I think it's like 2,600 times more than Bitcoin. Um, so we got a long way to go before we're energy inefficient. And the whole idea of turning energy, right, taking hydrocarbons out of the ground and turning it into something of value uh, that's immutable for the long term is actually really freaking cool. Um, and so we've been doing that forever. That, that's what life really is about. It's about you know, consuming calories and you know, having human energy or, or putting gas in your car and, and going to work and, and you know, producing goods and services or taking oil to run your machines and producing goods and services. So all of, of human history is about converting energy into things of value. So let's, let's just get off that FUD right now. Um, but you know, if, I, if I saw... Um, less technological advancement, less broad-based adoption. Um, if I saw less people fighting against it, 
right? The more governments try to ban it, the more excited I get. The more Warren Buffett says it's like, you know, rat poison squared or Charlie Munger one-upped his partner and said <laughs> it's like harvesting, trade, harvesting and trading dead baby brains. I'm like, seriously, Charlie, what the hell? Unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. And, you know, I, I talk about the tale of two Charlies and I stole this from John Burbank. You know, Charlie Munger, to be nice, has spent 10 minutes thinking about crypto and he says it's evil. Charlie Noyes, on the other hand, spent 10,000 hours. And people are like, that's impossible. He's 22 years old. How can he spend 10,000 hours? I'm like, well, Charlie's different, right? At nine, he started coding. At 11, he started mining Bitcoin. At 14, he won the national contest on distributed ledger technology papers over MIT and Caltech. At 17, he gets a full ride to MIT. After one semester, he says, you know, this is too easy. Dean, can I take a test? Oh, no? All right, I'm out. So he leaves and he goes to Pantera. Then he goes to Paradigm. I mean, the guy's really, really smart. And I trust that Charlie over Charlie Munger a hundred times out of a hundred, a hundred times out of a hundred. And that doesn't say that Charlie Munger's not smart. He is, and he's a billionaire and I'm not. But the reality is what Charlie doesn't know, actually Charlie does know that Bitcoin and blockchain threaten the ubiquity of, of his business, which is 46% of Berkshire Hathaway as financial services companies. And that's why he's gonna spread as much FUD as he possibly can, just like Jamie Dimon. And yet here's the crazy thing. Right? The day after Jamie called it a fraud, the biggest buyer of Bitcoin in the world was J.P. Morgan. Now, I don't know if they were buying it for themselves or for somebody else, but it's just a fact. And so always do what people do, not what they say. And Goldman Sachs says, oh, we think this is bad, yet internally they're you know, doing all kinds of you know, OTC transactions, and they got lots of smart people working on this, lots of smart people. And there are a lot of smart people that have left Goldman and are working at it in other places. So... We're all going down this rabbit hole together. We are all um, seeing opportunities that uh, are going to be fantastic in the future. And um, like I said, I could talk all day, but you guys only have an hour or so. No, I mean, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic answer right there. Um, definitely want to be sensitive to your time. Uh, so maybe just a couple quick ones to finish up. I, I found myself usually prefacing this question saying, you know, on our show, we usually don't talk about price, which is true, but... I'm asking the same question more and more. <laughs> and I, I certainly want to ask you, yep. uh, as we look forward here in 2019, uh, obviously, again, as, as I said before, we're in total bear euphoria right now. Really different environment than one year ago. W what is your realistic, probabilistic prediction for Bitcoin's price action in the next 12 months? You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, there's a great line I learned many years ago that, that you know, Great economists say what or when, never together. <laughs> um, and so I usually try to avoid that question, like the plague. But I'd never been asked a question I wouldn't answer, which <laughs> you was know, not necessarily smart. Um, in fact, the first time I, I got uh, media training, the guy was like, you know, dude, you don't have to answer every question. There's this thing called deflect and redirect. You deflect the question and tell them what you want to tell them. Um, but I don't like that. If someone asks me a question, I give an answer. So... Um, I can make a very cogent case uh, for 3190 or 3180 or wherever we were on December 14th uh, being the low for this cycle. I can make a very cogent case why that's why that is. Um, and a, a buddy of mine actually uh, bought. He, he wrote this great piece. And I tweeted it out last night saying, "You know, everybody hates Bitcoin. I hate Bitcoin, so I had to buy one." Mm. So, uh, and he did on December 13th. I mean, literally the day before the bottom. Uh, which is awesome. And so, you know, we'll, we'll call it the, uh, you know, Roger, you know, the bottom picker. Um, but I can also, I know you've talked to Murad, and 
I could make the case, as he has, again, very eloquently, that it's really probably more summertime to fall, where we have the absolute bottom somewhere, you know, closer to 3,000, maybe even in the 20s, uh, you know, two-handle. Um, but it's six of one half of another, and you know, over 12 months from here, I think within 12 months, we will be at the beginning of the next parabolic move in anticipation of the next halving. And there you are know, lots of technical reasons why I, I agree with Murad and all the other arguments about that. I also think that uh, human nature of, of networks is such that, that they tend to have these parabolic moves and crashes, and that's because the, the movement up is started by the, the true believers and the, the converts. And if, again, you look, go back to the S-curve, and I wrote about this in my quarterly letter, it's all about patience as a virtue and that you know, we're in this S-curve, we're, we're probably 10, 11% of the way through this 100-point cycle, and we're at the very bottom in that early adopter phase. And, and you, know, you have the, the innovators and the people who start something, and that's about 2.5% of the population, and, and those are the people that were really early back in you know, 2009, 10, 11, 12. And then converts like me come around in 2013 and we get converted by someone like Dan Moorhead, you know, who's a crypto genius at Pantera. And, and then you know, we start getting involved in that, that second wave. And in all of these, these waves, you get these, these parabolic moves because the speculators come in chasing price movement. So price movement goes up and it went from 10 to 100 and, and the speculators came in and, and then it crashed and went back to a you know, dollar something. And, and then it went back to over 100 and, and then it started to go towards 1,000 and, and back in 2000, whatever it was, 13, 14, it uh, gets to a thousand bucks and and uh, 2013, and everybody's all excited, and then it crashes again. And I actually wrote, I write these long quarterly letters, you know, 50, 60, 70 pages, and I wrote one paragraph in the second quarter of 2014. Bitcoin had fallen from a thousand to 400, and I said, you know, this looks like an interesting special situation. And I literally had clients say, you know, we'll fire you if you don't stop talking about this crazy stuff. It's like, wow, that's a violent reaction to one paragraph out of you know 70 pages. Well, when it went to 186, you know, through September, August, August, September that year, you know, I was like, okay, they're right. And I kind of didn't pay much attention to it. And then, you know, we all know how, you know, the rest of the story, it started to recover and things got better. And, and then, you know, we had the next parabolic move to 3,000. Then we had another crash. Then we had another parabolic move to 20,000. Then we had a crash. And so I think 12 months from now, we'll be in, in another parabolic move. And you know, I made the mistake last April of, of extrapolating uh, a curve that, that was based on Metcalf's law but, but had a too conservative a decay rate. And I've seen a couple now, I see Murad's chart and I've seen an, another guy. Um, Dimitri's. No, but that's another one I should look at, but I, I'm, I'm now blanking on, on this other guy's name. Um, but but he, he, made, he showed me one that, that I thought was a little, and I, I tweeted this one out a couple weeks ago that I just thought was more conservative. And you know, so last April I said I, I could see us getting up to that 25,000 level um, at the end of this year. And, and I think that's probably more a, a 1920, late 19, early 20 type, type target. So you know, whether we get to 10,000 12 months from now uh, or 20,000 or 25,000, I really don't have any idea. Um, I do know that over uh, a decade, 
I can see a, a case for, for a very large number um, as we head first towards you know, gold equivalents and then toward you know, kind of a uh, world reserve currency, not the world reserve currency, but a, and you've already seen some central banks say that they may add it to the repertoire, but we'll see. So I didn't answer your question very well, but let's say 12 months from now, um, you know, I could easily see us be you know, significantly higher than 10,000. No, no, that's a fantastic answer, and uh, definitely we're not we're not looking for trading uh, hot tips here. So one more quick question on this. Then you mentioned the having. I think this is very interesting uh, from an economic perspective. I mean, obviously we could do a whole other show on this, but people like to describe the having as as a shock for Bitcoin. You know, people have to retool mining hardware, uh, profitability changes, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I sort of take the view, I mean, like I do with a lot of things, and I've changed my view on inflation of Bitcoin and just calling it sort of emission or issuance because it's known. Every 10 minutes it's known. And we know, we know in 495 days, 70-some uh, thousand blocks from now, yep. the, the reward will have. So if it is a shock or a surprise to people, it's the most obvious surprise ever. I mean, it's just, it's frankly, it's, I don't think it is a surprise at all. Yeah, I don't think it's a surprise at all. I agree with you. I don't think it's a shock or a surprise. I think it's absolutely known. I think, again, the genius of, of Satoshi was that he laid all these things, or he, she, they laid all these things out yeah. in advance, which, which is the most transparent you know, monetary system in the history of, of mankind. You know, we still don't know what the Fed's going to do you know, 60 days from now, right. let alone every day for the rest of our life. So yeah, it's a, it's a uh, no. Just one more point there. It's an incredible monetary policy. Obviously, was what I'm getting at. But you know, furthermore, do you think that is something that's quote unquote always priced in in the markets, or or are financial speculators and investors in Bitcoin do they just not get it yet? Do they do they just not understand how the monetary policy of Bitcoin works? I don't know why they don't understand it, but they don't. And I think clearly, if if your reward halves the price per reward. Ceteris paribus, meaning you know electricity rates don't change, yeah. you know mining hardware prices don't change. If all of your input prices don't change, then your you know reward price has got to go up, um, and that's exactly what we've seen every time we've had a halving. And then you get that price movement, and because it is a shock, because most people aren't paying attention, that's when the speculators come in, and we get that that parabolic move away from from fair value. Uh, and I think it'll happen again. So, um, not surprising, but to your point, uh, shouldn't be a shock, but but clearly seems to be a shock that causes people uh, to overreact uh, on the upside. The same way they're overreacting on the downside now. I mean, you know, interesting thing about investing is, I say this all the time, it's, it's the only business I've ever known where when things go on sale, people run out of the store. And the cheaper the price, the further they run. And what you should do as a value investor is you should stay in the store and you should buy the stuff that's on sale. And yet what most people want to do is they want to buy the things that are super expensive and that are going up in price because they see price movement and herd activity as validating value. Well, no, it's just validating price. And you know, John Burbank, again, buddy, has a great line. He says, price is a liar. You know, people think price is right. No, price is never right. Never, ever, ever right. Um, Instantaneously, it might be just for momentary seconds, but it's on its way to being wrong either side, plus or minus. Um, price is a liar. It does not tell you exactly everything. It tells you what two people are willing to exchange an item of value at that precise moment. It has nothing to do with value. 
um, value is value. And the one thing I like about Bitcoin is at the end of the day, when all of the coins are issued, um, you know, it's the line that everybody uses, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, right? Doesn't have to do with dollars or yen or renminbi or whatever. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And if we get to the point where Bitcoin is the de facto standard currency for global investors who want to be borderless and in a peer-to-peer digital world in this, you know, sixth epoch, uh, of, of technology, you know, all the way back from the steam engine, electrification, inf- information age, and now the blockchain era, all of this lines up kind of starting in 2024 for an era of, you know, century, couple centuries, whatever it is, before that next innovation wave comes along and, you know, I'll be long gone and my kids can deal with it. But um, it's pretty cool right now to be living through what I think is, is one of the most incredible innovative and, and technologically advanced um, times uh, that, we'll, that we'll ever see. And I, and I stand by my statement that, that this is the greatest wealth creation opportunity any of us will see in our lifetime. And uh, if you ignore it, which you're you know, perfectly, you, you can do that, you can choose to do that, but, but why? I still get it, it just doesn't make sense. Asymmetrically, uh, where you can find an asset where, yeah, there's a risk, you know, it's possible that this is all going to go to zero and wipe out. It's not probable, but it's possible. But the, it's also possible that you know, you're going to make many, many, many multiples of your capital, and there just aren't that many assets in a, in a fiat currency world, you know, unless you live in Venezuela, right? Best performing stock market in the world, uh, but you don't want to own those stocks because your currency is getting devalued every single day, and you need a wheelbarrow. So, and that's the history of fiat currencies, is they get hyperinflated away to zero, uh, but sound money won't do that. That's why I like Bitcoin. Mark, I uh, I have to quote uh, something that Fernando is writing in our in our chat here for the show. He he says he is definitely alone in this industry, ahead of his peers. I could not agree more. Um, oh, you're really nice. I appreciate that very much, guys. Yeah. So as we as we close this, you know, what are you guys doing at Morgan Creek? Any uh, anything to share? And uh, where can our listeners find more about you? Yep, so we're, we're easy to find. So you, know, you can go to morgancreekcapcap.com. That's uh, Morgan Creek Capital Management. And then we've also got morgancreekfunds.com. And then inside there, uh, we've got a, an entity where Pomp and I and Jason reside called Morgan Creek Digital Assets. And then we also have uh, on our website, we've got a link to uh, one of our products in, in the digital space, the Digital Asset Index Fund something that we partnered with Bitwise to create what we hope becomes the S&P 500 of digital assets over time. Uh, We also run a a venture fund called Blockchain Opportunity Fund uh, where we make investments in infrastructure. Uh, We raised our first fund. um, We're closing that up at the end of the quarter here, and then we'll start fundraising for Fund 2 sometime later this year. And we're also looking at a a lending product in uh, crypto space and and look at a couple other projects. But uh, you know what, what's great for me is you know, I started this journey six years ago with my friend Dan Moorhead, and you know, I made the first of my many bad decisions. I didn't invest in his Bitcoin fund in 13, which I should have, because it's the best performing hedge fund in the history of hedge funds, up 96x, including the downdraft. And, uh, but his venture fund that we did invest in is up 9.6. That's pretty good, so we're happy about that. Um, but he helped me kind of get involved in the space and I owe him a debt of gratitude because it's, it's opened up uh, a lot of great projects that we're gonna work on for 
as I call it, chapter three. You know, chapter one, I worked for not-for-profits. Chapter two, I built this traditional asset management firm, Morgan Creek. And now chapter three is all about Morgan Creek Digital and, and what we'll do in the digital age. So appreciate spending time with you guys. I, I love the fact, I absolutely love the fact that you know, we're sitting in Chapel Hill, Latvia, and Brazil talking about a global borderless asset that can revolutionize um, peer-to-peer commerce and, and value exchange as we know it. And uh, it's, just, it's just awesome. It's a great time to be alive. Too right. Uh, completely echo those sentiments. Uh, Mark, thank you very much. We will, we will link all those things in the show notes. Definitely encourage our listeners to check them out. And yeah, again, thank you very much. All the best to you and Pomp and Jason and everybody at Morgan Creek. No, thanks. I really enjoyed it. And uh, by the way, you have a voice for radio, so uh, uh, he really does. And Fernando, not that you don't have a great voice, too, <laughs> I know, but, but I he's, know. he's got the radio voice. It's a face uh, for radio as well, so... Uh, <laughs> it does. <laughs> thanks, Mark. Take care. All the best. No, thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Really enjoyed it. Bye.